The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 19. And today, we get to celebrate Palm Sunday. And you just heard in the announcements, next week is a big weekend around here. On Friday, of course, we have Good Friday and then all of our services on Easter weekend. And my only question for you is, who are you bringing? Because this is that opportune time when people are open and receptive to an invitation to come to church. And we want as many people as possible to hear the gospel, to get saved, to know Jesus, and have their sins forgiven. So the title of my message for you tonight is Coronation of the King. We're talking, of course, about Palm Sunday. It's one of only a handful of stories that finds its way into all four of the Gospels. So you have the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and and then John is kind of an outlier. He tells a lot of different stories. But this is one of a handful of stories that you'll find in all four Gospels. So that makes it significant. And it marks that event in history where Jesus climbed onto the back of a donkey and rode into Jerusalem through the eastern gate. But what's so special about that? What makes Palm Sunday unique or special? And there's a couple of different things that I would like to say in response to that question. The first is, it's the only time that Jesus ever orchestrated a public spectacle. And I see now that we have this picture behind me. I want to mention, this is, this is the Mount of Olives, where we're standing our vantage point right now. And what you're looking at is the Kidron Valley down below. And that's uh, the Eastern Gate directly in front of, well, it's the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that domed building, and it's actually a a Muslim mosque. But in Jesus' day, that's where the, the Temple of Solomon would have stood. And so this is where the events described in the chapter that we're about to read, this is where that happened. Okay, so getting back to what I was just saying, this is the only time that Jesus ever orchestrated a public spectacle. If you've ever read through the Gospels, you know that he was always shying away from attention. Oftentimes, after he would heal someone, he would turn to them, and I always kind of find this comical, but he would say to them, now, don't tell anybody that I've just healed your legs. You couldn't walk for 38 years, but please, just keep it between us, you know? And he had reasons for doing that, but he would tell people not to say anything. He would shush them. In fact, he would often run away from the crowds. But on this occasion, Jesus didn't just allow the crowds to praise him. He demanded their praise. In fact, he told the Pharisees that if the people were to hold their peace, that the very stones would cry out. So obviously, there was something unique, something special that was happening on this day. So that's one reason. Another thing that makes Palm Sunday special is it was Lamb Selection Day. So prior to the Passover feast, about four days prior to that, every Jewish family would take from their herds and they would select a lamb that then they would use as the sacrifice four days later. And what they would do is they would take this lamb into their home and they would inspect it over the course of the week. 
And they would be looking for any signs of sickness or weakness or blemishes because you were to only use a lamb without spot or blemish as a sacrifice for the family. And so Jesus is here on this day, Palm Sunday, Lamb Selection Day, and he's presenting himself to the nation of Israel. Isn't it fitting that the one that John described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is here saying, here I am. And over the course of the next several days, Jesus would be thoroughly investigated by not only the the religious leaders of the day, but ultimately by Pilate himself. And at the end of Pilate's inquiry into Jesus' life, you remember what Pilate said. He said, I find no fault in the man. And so after a full week of inquiry, Jesus was found to be without fault. In other words, he was the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God. A third thing was going on. Jesus was also presenting himself here as Israel's king. You could view the events of Palm Sunday as Jesus' own coronation ceremony. Now, when you think of a coronation ceremony for a king or a queen, you probably picture an elaborate affair, something big, something haughty, something ostentatious. How many of you are fans of the show uh, The Crown? You know that show? I watched about a season or two of it. Okay, we don't have a whole lot of Crown fans in here. (laughs) Let me tell you about it. It's a great show. I think it's on Netflix or something. Anyways, you can watch Queen Elizabeth's coronation on that show, and it does a beautiful job of that. It, It took place in the beautiful cathedral, Westminster Abbey, way back in 1953. She was 27 years old at the time. The event was broadcast on live TV. It was a big deal at the time as millions of people from around the globe tuned in simultaneously to watch this woman be crowned as England's queen. At the time, it was the largest TV audience ever. She pulled up to the church in a golden carriage, which had been built for King George III all the way back in 1762, a fitting ride for royalty. Throughout the course of the event, she wore three different crowns. One of the crowns was encrusted, get this, with 1,333 diamonds and over 169 pearls. Another one of the crowns held the second largest diamond in the world. It's called the Lesser Star of Africa. It was a 317 carat diamond. (laughs) Her dress, ladies, was made from white satin, and it was covered with thousands of tiny pearls. To complete the ensemble, she wore a robe made from 20 yards of velvet, finished with silk. The dress alone took a team of seamstresses more than 10 weeks to sew. So that was her coronation ceremony. And I'm thinking if if you or if I were put in charge of orchestrating the events for Jesus' coronation, we would probably do something like that, right? I mean, something beautiful, something big. After all, the king of the universe is deserving of the most extravagant, the most opulent ceremony of all time. It shouldn't maybe just last a day. Maybe it could last for a week or even weeks, and all of the heads of state and dignitaries should be there in attendance, all of Israel's finest should be there to to greet the king of kings. That's how I would have drawn it up. 
But Jesus was a different kind of king. And the kingdom he came to inaugurate was different too. So, so maybe then it's fitting that his inauguration or his coronation be different as well. Let's go ahead and read about it. Beginning in verse 29 of Luke 19, it says, as he approached Bethpage of Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, now go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here and if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And so they brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put him on it. All right, so here Jesus is putting together his own coronation. This is the plan. That's the title I've given to the heading of this portion of scripture. He's planning his own coronation, you know, in about 15 minutes or with just a few instructions to his disciples. They get to the top of the Mount of Olives and Jesus says, go into the next town over there, you'll find a donkey and just start untying it. And if anyone asks you what you're doing, just tell them the Lord needs it, which is a peculiar plan, right? We might have expected Jesus to say, knock on the door, find the owner, say the Lord needs to borrow your donkey, would that be all right? But Jesus starts with, untie the donkey and then if they ask you, what are you doing? You're stealing my donkey. Then you can just say, the Lord needs it. So these guys are like, what in the heck is going on? Has God ever asked you to do something that didn't make sense to you at the time? Okay, I'm in good company then. We've all been there. He often asks us to do things that don't make sense at the time. But anyways, they go into the village and they find things just as Jesus said. And lo and behold, there's this donkey and it's tied up and they begin to untie it, and sure enough, someone opens their door like, what are you doing? That's my donkey. And they look at each other, and they go, the Lord has need of it? And the guy's like, okay, that's good enough for me. You know? I've often wondered if they kind of used the Jedi mind trick, like, the Lord has need of it, and just untied it. Walk. I don't know how it went down, but we do know that they found it just as Jesus said. But the thing that really captures my attention is that phrase, the Lord needs it. I mean, if you're a king... You don't have a lot of needs, do you? You just buy whatever you want. Or better yet, you just take what you want. And yet here we find Jesus making this really interesting statement, the Lord needs it. If Jesus is really the Lord, then why does he need anything, right? And yet throughout his life and ministry, we repeatedly find Jesus in a position of need. It starts all the way back at his birth. When Mary and Joseph were looking for a place to deliver Jesus, because Mary was in that process of delivering him, they had to borrow a stable and borrow even a manger to lay him in on his first night. Later on, when Jesus was just starting out his ministry, and there was a big crowd standing around him, he didn't have a pulpit to preach from, so he looks at Peter and he says, can I borrow your boat? So we can push out and I can get away from the crowd and use your boat as a, a platform or a pulpit. So he had to borrow Peter's boat. On another occasion, Jesus had to borrow a kid's lunch in order to feed a multitude. And I'm thinking, if you can feed the multitude, why do you need the lunch in the first place? Yet he did. He also had to borrow a coin at one point in order to make a point they said, who should we pay taxes to, Caesar or no? And he goes, well, 
Does anybody have a coin on it? I don't, I'm, he borrows a coin to make the point. He had to borrow a room to share the Last Supper with his disciples. And here we find him borrowing this donkey. You could go so far as to say he borrowed a tomb to be buried in. I like to point out that he just borrowed the tomb. He didn't stay there, right? Amen? Now, of course, Jesus didn't really need to borrow any of these things, right? He could have just made the loaves and the fish appear. He could have just snapped his finger and a donkey pops up right there. Yet, Jesus continuously put himself in a position of need. Why? So that he could include us. I like the way 2 Corinthians 8, 9 puts it. I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The King of kings, the Lord of glory, made himself nothing, became a pauper, in order that through his poverty, you and I might become rich. He put himself in a position of need. Now, I want to talk for a minute or two about the donkey in our story. I, I love the donkey. I feel like he's one of the unsung characters or heroes of this story. I mean, let's picture what life was like for this donkey. One minute, he's just sitting there minding his own business, just you know, feeding out of his trough or whatever donkeys do in their spare time, enjoying a great donkey life. Then the next thing he knows, he's being untied by a bunch of strangers. He's being led away to another stranger. This stranger then sits on his back, and suddenly everyone is surrounding him, and they're throwing their coats down in front of him and waving palm branches all around him. He must have been feeling pretty good about himself at that point. <laughs> but I see in that a picture of, of all of us, really. <laughs> Maybe you feel ordinary, insignificant, stuck tied down by various things, just like the donkey in our story. It could be that Jesus is walking up to you right now, and he's saying, you know what? I need someone just like you. That's right. The Lord needs you. He needs to borrow your time, your talents, your gifts, and your service in order that he might use you to advance his purposes and his kingdom agenda. The Lord wants to know, will you let him? Will you allow him to use you? This donkey did. He even got to help fulfill an ancient prophecy. How cool is that? 500 years before the events in this chapter unfold, the prophet Zechariah wrote these words about the coming Messiah. Let's read them together. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'm struck by that last phrase. He's coming to you lowly on a colt, on a donkey, on a foal. We're used to seeing kings and queens on the backs of mighty stallions not donkeys. I did a little research on this, and I found that Alexander the Great, we're familiar with that name from history, his horse, evidently, was almost as famous as he was. It was this huge stallion named Busphalus. Busphalus means ox head. Apparently, this horse was not only massive, but he had a big head as well. And Alexander rode that same horse into every single battle he ever fought in. 
And it, it was a champion horse that came from a champion lion in a renowned area in Greece. And we feel like that's a fitting kind of animal for a, a king to ride upon. Now, compare that to this ordinary and lowly donkey that Jesus rode into town on. In a way, though, it's, it's picturesque. It's representative of the kind of man that Jesus was, the kind of king that he was, and the kind of ministry that he had. He was a king, but he was no ordinary or typical king. He was a humble king, an accessible king, a reachable king. I mean, if Jesus had rode in on that stallion, people would have, you know, kind of held back in fear, but not so with a donkey. Nobody's intimidated by a donkey. Jesus' kingdom was an upside-down kingdom. It ran on a set of inverted principles. Even he described himself as lowly and meek. And so it was fitting that he rode the donkey. Now, now I want to point out that at the end of the age, when Jesus returns to the earth, because we get a snapshot of that in the book of Revelation. Specifically, I think it's right there in chapter 19. And there, Jesus, when he comes back to the earth, he's coming back on a white horse, the Bible says. And when he comes back, he's coming as a conquering king. And he's coming to right all the wrongs on the earth and to do away with the devil and his works. And the Bible describes how a sword will protrude from his mouth and destroy his enemies. So that's coming. But in his first coming, Jesus came humbly. And so we see that. Now, in this next part of the story, verses 36 through 38, we're going to see the procession, the procession. Let's read about that in verse 36. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So let me just kind of paint this picture for you, if I can. We know from extra biblical sources that Around this time of year, during the various feasts, and in particular, the Feast of Passover, which was just around the corner from the events described here, that the population of Jerusalem would swell to about four to five times its normal size. So typically, Jerusalem was home to about half a million people. But during the Passover season, it would swell to about two to two and a half million people. Now, obviously, all those people couldn't fit within Side Jerusalem proper. And so what many of them would do is they would just camp out for the week in the hills surrounding the city. And as you would have made your way to the various camps that kind of pockmarked their way all around the city, what you would have heard in every one of those circles is people talking about one thing, Jesus of Nazareth. Stories of the miracle-working rabbi from Nazareth were dominating every local conversation. I mean, the very air itself was charged with electricity. Adding fresh fuel to the fire were accounts that Jesus, just earlier that same week, had raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. And people were saying, did you hear about Lazarus? People were speculating about whether Jesus might, in fact, be Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Things had reached a fever pitch, in other words. And then perhaps at some point, as all these people are camped out there on the Mount of Olives, someone looks over and they say, look at that guy on the back of that donkey. I think they look familiar. It's 
I think that's Jesus. That's Jesus. I know. I saw him. He rode through my village one day. It's Jesus. And the crowd soon began to gather. In the joy of the moment, one of the disciples spontaneously takes off his coat, his garment, and he throws it on the ground for the donkey to walk on. I mean, I don't think this was something that he had planned out or pre-thought of. It was just in the spur of the moment. He was caught up in the emotions of things, and and he, he just throws his coat down, and others quickly followed suit. Before long, everybody's doing it. The gesture, though, wasn't wasn't just a kind act. It was a bold political statement. You see, this was something that was often done for dignitaries and kings, and it symbolically communicated a willingness to bow before the king and even yield one's possessions to aid him in his rule. At the same time, someone goes over, and this is all happening simultaneously. Someone runs over to a palm tree, and they rip off a palm branch, and they start waving it in the air. They wave the palm branch. And then again, others soon followed. This, too, was significant. Now, you might have noticed that Luke didn't mention any palm branches in our text here. But since all the other gospel authors mentioned the palm branches, and since we call this Palm Sunday, I thought I should bring it up. At that time, palms were used as political symbols. They spoke of victory and power and triumph. In the Olympic Games, the athlete who who won the competition was gifted a palm frond. It was a very prestigious award. And so, too, those emperors or kings or generals who won a battle, when they would come back, they would hold a parade, and, and all the people would line the streets, and they would wave the palm branches back and forth. So all of that's going on. And then on top of all of that, the, the people, <clears throat> Luke tells us, broke out in song. Give me just a second here. They broke out in song. And the song that was on their lips it was a direct quote. It was, this was one of Israel's favorite songs. This is one of those songs that had topped the, the top 40 charts for a long time, ever since the days of King David. It's Psalm 118, specifically verse 26. And the people said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a favorite, as I said, of the Jewish people. It's a psalm that speaks of deliverance. It was known in that day as the conqueror's psalm. And if that doesn't tell you just a little bit about what the people were anticipating, expecting, and wanting from Jesus, they clearly hoped that he would come in and lead a military coup against Rome, who was oppressing them and occupying them. And they hoped that he would overthrow Rome. And and so too, they were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the word Hosanna literally translates to save now. And what the people failed to recognize is that, yes, Jesus had come, in fact, to save them and to save them now, only not in the way they were looking for. You see, they were looking for a physical salvation They were looking for Jesus to overthrow Rome and establish an earthly kingdom. But Jesus had other ambitions, higher ambitions. He came to take on sin and hell and death and establish a spiritual kingdom that would ultimately triumph not only in a local place like Jerusalem, but around the whole earth. So when the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't going to do what they wanted him to do, they turned on him, didn't they? 
We know that because it's crazy to think that within a week's time, many of the, the same people that were part of this crowd were a part of another crowd, one that was, instead of chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they were chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But as of yet, that was still on the horizon. At this moment, the crowds were with him. But not everyone was with him, nor was everyone happy about what was taking place. You see, there were a number of religious leaders and Pharisees there that had mingled with the crowd. And when they saw what was happening and they heard the songs that were being sung, they intervened. Why? Because they saw Jesus as a threat to their political standing there within Rome. And we read about that beginning in verse 39. It says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said this, I tell you, if they kept quiet, the stones would cry out. Woo! I've given as a title for this part of our text, ordained for praise. First thing I want to mention is this. I just wish so bad that the people would have kept quiet. Don't you? I mean, I want, even though we wouldn't have been there and we couldn't hear it, like, to hear the description of what rocks sound like when they give praise to God. I mean, we don't have to question what genre of music it would have been. Rock music, okay, let's move on. But why did Jesus say that about the rocks crying out? I think it had something to do with the fact that not only was this day significant, but he is significant. He is the pinnacle of all human history. Everything centers around him. Everything about history points to him. And even creation itself acknowledges and recognizes its creator. That's why Jesus could speak to the wind and the waves, and it would obey him. Even inanimate objects, like rocks, would cry out. They don't even have mouths. What does that sound like? The Bible talks about the trees of the fields clapping their hands. All of creation recognizes its creator. I've always loved Psalm 19. It starts out like this, and I'd love it if we could read it together out loud. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You know when you look at a piece of artwork, or even if you listen to a beautiful musical composition, you'll get a sense of who the artist or composer is. Why? Because the art reflects the heart of the artist. And the same is true with the heavens. The Bible says that they reflect the handiwork and the grandeur and the creative genius of our magnificent God. And so they're actually preaching a message to us each and every night. As you step out tonight, I invite you and encourage you to just look up at the stars and allow them to minister to your hearts. They, they, they preach a message of God's greatness, his bigness. But it's not just the heavens above us. It's the animal kingdom all around us. I love this quote from the book of Job. Let's read it together as, as well out loud. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. And the beast, the, I got lost. I'm sorry. Can we start over? It was just too small. I'm getting old. It is what it is. 
<laughs> I tried to switch. Oh, Lord, give me grace. I'm like, yeah. it's an 80-inch screen, too. I don't even know. Somebody pray for me. Anyways, OK, let's try it again. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Oh, how great is that scripture? You might want to jot that one down, right? Everything from fish to birds to even bushes recognizes their creator. I remember that story in the Gospels where the disciples have been fishing all night long. And they're fishing. And remember, Jesus shows up. And he asks them a question that I'm sure must have just irked them a little bit. You know, like, How, how's it going out there? Have you caught anything? No, we haven't caught anything. The disciples were always fishing. They weren't called catchermen. They were called fishermen. They didn't catch a lot, right? And so Jesus says, did you try the other side of the boat? <laughs> Which is just comical, right? They're fishing here, and they're like, oh, really? You thought we should try there? But meanwhile, Jesus says it with a twinkle in his eye. Why? Because the fish in the Sea of Galilee recognized the voice of the one who created them in the first place. And so Jesus just has them in a holding pattern directly underneath the boat so that when they obey the word of the Lord and they place their nets on the other side of the boat, Jesus goes, uh, and all the fish in the Sea of Galilee jump into the nets, and it's just like the boat's about to sink under the weight of all these fish. And it just speaks to this idea that even fish recognize their creator. They recognize the work of the hands of the Lord. Even bushes, I love that. And yet, while all of creation reflects something of God's nature, only one part of creation is said to bear his image. Only humanity was created in the image and after the likeness of God. Tune in here. What that means for you and I is that, is that we get to glorify God in a way that no other part of creation can. We can bring praise to him in a way that surpasses and exceeds the glory that the heavens ascribe to God or the glory that the fish in the sea or the birds in the air or the anything else can bring to God. You and I have the capacity to bring God a greater degree of gl glory. And how do we do that? By voluntarily worshiping him. When we give him our praise, we reflect back and resound and reverberate the very purpose of our existence. Now, when we fail to do that, on the other hand, we violate. Listen, when we fail to give him praise, we violate the reason for our very existence. And the result of this will always be the same thing in your life. It will result in a gnawing sense of futility and frustration. Why? Because you're not fulfilling your purpose. You, friend, were created and designed ultimately to give worship to God. In John 4, Jesus had this wonderful conversation with the woman at the well. And in part of that conversation, he said to her, the Father is looking for worshipers. I find that significant. It doesn't say that he needs our worship, as though he's just like, oh, please, stop, pop, stop. No, no, no. It says he's looking for worshipers. Why? Because it releases something in us when we 
step into our design, into our purpose, into our fulfillment of our calling. It releases joy in us as we give glory to him. And so ultimately, what I'm saying is, I don't want to let the rocks cry out. I don't want to let the rocks cry out. I want to give him praise. I want to give him praise. I want to give him praise because he's worthy of our worship. Now, we have to finish this up, and then we're going to give him some praise. But in verses 41 through 44, the the story takes a rather unusual turn, and it, it has a peculiar ending. Then Jesus said to them, am I in the right? Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 41, my pages keep turning with the wind. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you to the ground, and you and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. I told you, it's a curious way for this story to end. I mean, is this Jesus' version of, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to? Like, what's going on here? Why did Jesus weep as he drew near the city of Jerusalem? Two reasons. Number one, he foresaw the coming destruction of the city. He knew, because he's God, that within a short time, because of the people's rebellion against the Lord, that judgment was coming. In point of fact, we know from history that That in the year 70 AD, so about roughly 40 years after this prediction was made, that Titus the Roman came through and with the Roman army, he leveled the city of Jerusalem. Now during his invasion, a flaming arrow was struck and it struck the the city, or not just the city, but it struck the temple and the temple burned to the ground. Now, the only problem with that was that there in the temple, there was a lot of gold. And so the gold melted into the cracks and crevices of the massive stones that surrounded and made up the temple. To get to the gold, the soldiers literally took the stones off one of another. And I've been to Jerusalem, and you can see one of these massive stones. It's right there next to the western wall. It's about 30 feet in length and 10 to 15 feet in width and height. I mean, the thing's as big as a school bus. And it had been pushed off the Temple Mount area. Why? So that these soldiers could get to the gold underneath. More importantly, they perfectly and exactingly fulfilled Jesus' prophecy about one stone not being left on top of another. And so Jesus wept for the city because he loved these people. But there's a second reason that Jesus cites as a reason for why he was crying. And he speaks to it in verse 44, where he says they didn't recognize the time of God's coming to them. He says, if you had known On this day, this day, there was something significant about that day. There's a guy named Sir Robert Anderson. A long time ago, he was the head of Scotland Yard and the investigations that went on in England. And he did some investigating on this. And he traced it back to a prophecy in the book of Daniel. He wrote a book on the topic. You can read it. It's in my bookshelf. It's called The Coming Prince. And if you look at Daniel chapter 9, 
the Lord tells Daniel, this beloved prophet, that from the time that the command is given to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem to the time when the Messiah, the prince, would come, it would be a time of 69 weeks of years, or quite literally, 483 years. Or if you wanted to break it down even further, that's 173,880 days. From the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, 173,880 days. Well, Sir Robert Anderson decided to do a little digging historically. And we, we know from history that King Artaxerxes is the one who gave the command to restore Jerusalem. It happened on March 14th, 445 BC. You can go back and verify that. And what he did was he began to count from that date moving forward, 173,880 days. And if you do that, according to the Jewish calendar, what you'll land on is April 6th, 32 AD. We better know that day as Palm Sunday. Jesus is telling them, if you had known that this day I had spoken to you through your prophets preparing you so that when I came, you would be ready for me. This was their day, but they missed him. Why? Because he didn't meet their expectations. He wasn't the kind of king that they wanted or were looking for. And so when he came, he went largely unnoticed. Sure, they were happy to sit around and enjoy a free meal or take in a show or watch a healing. But when it came time to surrendering their will and their lives to him, they were like, I don't think that's for me. And so they missed him because they failed to recognize the timing of God's coming to them. And I would like to close by saying, don't be like them. Don't miss the time of your visitation. The Bible talks about how today is the day of salvation. And if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Hebrews 3.15, today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. The Bible never promises salvation tomorrow. It always speaks of today. And let me just say this. If you are here this evening and you don't know the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior, if there's never been a moment in time where you have surrendered your will and given your heart to Jesus, then make today that day. It can become your spiritual birthday, Palm Sunday, 2022, you'll never forget it. It will be a date in history that becomes a hinge that changes the course of your eternal destiny. You can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Lord being your strength, and the peace that comes from knowing that your past is forgiven, your guilt is gone, your shame is done away with. Don't miss your day. They missed their day. Don't miss yours. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.